Hello, Scriptorians. I'm so glad you're back. I'm Jared Halverson, and any chance I get to spend time in the Scriptures with you is a blessing. So thank you so much for tuning in. Last week we talked about the book of Mosiah being kind of tricky because there's two different places, land of Zarahemla, land of Nephi, three different generations in both places, King Mosiah I, King Benjamin, King Mosiah II, all in Zarahemla, Zenith, Noah, Limhi, all in the land of Nephi. Last week we met Limhi and then flashed back to Zenith. Today we get to spend our time with the most famous of the three generations in the land of Nephi, King Noah. And even better, we get to spend it with Abinadi. These are some of the best chapters in the Book of Mormon. In fact, once you get into Abinadi's words, the pages start falling out of my scriptures. Uh, I've already had my scriptures rebound, but these ones just won't seem to, they're so powerful, they just burst forth. Uh, and I hope that they'll burst forth with some meaning for us today. When we talked about the, the, the three generations, they're not perfectly parallel in, as far as time is concerned. But to see them as foils for each other is fascinating. And the best foil is this second generation. To compare King Noah with King Benjamin, there are so many compare and contrast opportunities between these two. What amazes me is when you first meet King Noah at the beginning of chapter 11, it lets us know that he didn't have to be the star, or in this case, the villain of the story. Uh, the way chapter 10 ends, King Zenith is old, and he says, I being old did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons, therefore I say no more. And the way 11 begins, kind of picking up right where it left off, it came to pass that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. The fact that Noah was one of his sons, I'm like, you mean you had other options and you went with Noah? Are you kidding me? Man, your other sons must have been pathetic if Noah was your first choice. Noah is an interesting character with some amazing lessons to teach us. Lessons more on what not to do than what to do. May his life be our cautionary tale perhaps for the day. And notice what he's described as from the very beginning. Verse 1, Noah began to reign in his stead and, first thing we know about him, he did not walk in the ways of his father. Now we learned last week that Zenith wasn't a perfect person. So in some ways, not walking in the ways of one's father may not be entirely bad. Hopefully each generation makes some changes from previous generations, as long as those changes are in a positive direction. That wasn't the case with Noah. He got worse. Remember last week's discussion of Hansen's Law, where the first generation of immigrants still holds on to a lot of their culture and their heritage and their traditions? They remember the old country and they kind of bring it with them. We sense that from Zenith where he still relies on the strength of the Lord. He calls upon the Lord, puts his trust in the Lord. Those are all things he would have grown up with in Zarahemla. And yet the second generation after the immigrant, this is now no longer preservation of previous culture. This is flat out rejection of previous culture. It's like, I'm an American now. I don't want to have to do the things that we used to do or that your ancestor did. I don't even have an accent like you guys do. And I'm almost embarrassed by my old world parents. That's King Noah in this story. Only later to be followed by a third generation that starts looking back more nostalgically at the first generation traditions and cultural heritage that were lost and wants to kind of reappropriate some of that for themselves. We see that in Limhi, who finally comes full circle and returns to the land of Zarahemla. We'll see that next week. But in this middle stage, this second generation, the rejectors, the creation, fall, atonement, this is full on fall. 
and in King Noah's place with no interest in either looking back to Eden or looking forward to Gethsemane. I'm completely content here east of Eden, living in a fallen world that I don't even consider fallen. So when verse 1 says that Noah did not walk in the ways of his father, this is in the negative direction. Of course, one wonders, if Zenith was described as being overzealous, is that part of the reason here? We don't know all the aspects of Zenith's overzealousness, but I think sometimes if we are too strict or too extreme. I'm not saying we become lackadaisical. We don't need to swing the pendulum so far in the opposite direction. But in some ways, because the pendulum was too far over on this extreme in Zenith, no wonder Noah didn't just correct, but he overcorrected and was too extreme on the opposite. You get an overzealous parent who ends up with a completely undercommitted son. A certain degree of it has to be this way for the parent to a it can be any way you want in the sun. Be aware of those potential pendulum swings. Verse 2, Noah's lifestyle becomes more clear. And boy, does it compare to King Benjamin's. For behold, Noah did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the desires of his own heart. Meanwhile, what was King Benjamin doing back in Zarahemla? trying to effect a mighty change of heart for his people. King Noah had many wives and concubines and caused his people to commit sin, namely commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. Meanwhile, what is Benjamin doing? Gathering families together before the temple to learn to take upon themselves the name of Christ. Noah causing his people to commit sin, Benjamin not allowing his people to commit sin while still honoring their agency in the process. Verse 3, Noah lays a tax of one-fifth of all his people possessed. Meanwhile, King Benjamin lays no taxes on his people, nothing grievous to be born, and instead serves alongside them. So he doesn't need to require their taxation. Verse 4, this King Noah did to support himself and his wives and his concubines and his priests and their wives and their concubines. The exact opposite of what King Benjamin was doing. Thus, King Noah changed the affairs of the kingdom. I don't want to do it the way my dad did. Whereas King Benjamin followed all the commandments of his father, Mosiah. Verse 5, King Noah put down the priests that had been consecrated by his father and consecrated new ones in their stead that were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Sounds a lot like Rehoboam in the Old Testament, who rejects his father Solomon's counselors and goes for young counselors that do not want to do the things the way they were done before. And Rehoboam ends up losing the majority of the kingdom as a result. Verse 6, thus they were supported in their laziness and in their idolatry. Remember we saw that last week? The connection between idleness, I-D-L-E, and idleness, I-D-O-L, that worship is work, but idolatry requires nothing of you. Interesting parallel here. Whereas King Benjamin... Speaking of serving God with all that we have and are, and yet still being unprofitable servants, the true work of true worship. End of verse 6, thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. Instead of King Benjamin's people, laboring exceedingly to come unto Christ. Verse 7, Noah's people became idolatrous because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and his priests. 
flattering words, saying just what the people wanted to hear. Whereas King Benjamin and the teachers that he appointed, trying to stir the people up unto repentance, to remember the covenant that they've made. Not flattering them, but calling them to higher levels of living. Not telling them what they wanted to hear, telling them what they needed to hear, and helping them develop the desire to act upon it. By the way, if you're to kind of categorize Noah's sins, they fall roughly into three main categories. There are the lusts of the flesh, these whoredoms, concubines. There is the pride of the world. We saw that in verse 5. We'll see it again later in verse 11 and 12. And thirdly, a high degree of materialism and worldliness with all of this taxation and building up of great things for themselves. The reason we can categorize Noah's sins into those three categories is because really those are the three categories that have always existed. Remember Jesus at the Mount of Temptations in Matthew chapter 4? First temptation, change stones to bread. What kind was that? Lusts of the flesh. Second temptation, throw yourself from the temple. God will send the angels to save you so you don't dash your foot against a stone. What kind of temptation was that? Pride. Third temptation, worship me and have all the kingdoms of the world. What kind of temptation was that? Worldliness and materialism. It's the same three. Nephi, back in 1 Nephi, described the great and abominable church and the, that great and spacious building having those three same de desires. When Jacob teaches his people and chastises them for their wickedness, the three things he mentions are their whoredoms, their lusts of the flesh, their pride, thinking they're better than, than others, and their materialism, beginning to wax rich in the things of the world. Even if you were to go back to the Old Testament and see the kings of Israel, there were only three kings of united Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And what did those three kings fall to? Saul fell to pride. Couldn't handle that people were singing about David killing his tens of thousands when Saul had only killed his thousands. Second, King David, he fell to the lust of the flesh with Bathsheba. And third, Solomon fell to the worldliness and materialism all around him. There's a beautiful difference there that the three sins that took down the three kings of Israel did nothing when Satan used the same things in an attempt to take down the king of kings. And yet here, King Noah is guilty of all three. He combines the worst things about Saul, David, and Solomon to become one of the worst kings among these apostate Nephites. In verse 10, he ornaments the temple. So the temple is still present there. Remember, that's where Limhi gathered his people a generation later. The temple factors into the work of King Benjamin as well. But it's not a matter of fine ornamentation. It's a matter of focal point for his people in their tents. Then in verse 11, the seats which were set apart for the high priests, which were above all the other seats, not the kingly condescension of Benjamin. He ornamented those with pure gold, and caused a breastwork to be built before them, I love this part, that they might rest their bodies and their arms upon while they should speak lying and vain words to his people. I had no idea that speaking vain and lying words was so taxing, such, such an exhausting labor, that they would need to have this breastwork of gold to be able to recline upon while they lied and deceived their people. Also in verse 12, King Noah builds a tower near the temple. Sound familiar? 
just like Benjamin did. And yet Benjamin's was to allow his words to go, get to the farthest reach as possible. Meanwhile, King Noah's tower seemed to be to give him a vantage point, to be able to look out over all his domains. Again, it sounds a little like temptation number three with Satan showing Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Verse 14, he, King Noah placed his heart upon his riches, spent his time in riotous living. That's the word used to describe the prodigal son. And this son was definitely a prodigal one. And so did also his priests spend their time, all of them with harlots. In verse 15, they even drink wine in abundance and become wine bibbers. Fun word to say. A little harder to find a foil in that regard for King Benjamin, unless you consider his goals were sacramental, to give them the name of Christ, to always remember him, to keep his commandments which he has given them. Back in Zarahemla, it would have been the wine of sacrament. Here, it was simply the wine of drunken debauchery. In verse 16, the Lamanites come into the territory and begin slaying the people. We saw that happen in two different rounds in the reign of King Zenith, Noah's father. Like we talked about last week, there may be great periods of peace and prosperity, but if you remain in enemy territory, it's just a matter of time before you pay the piper. In 17, Noah sends guards roundabout to keep them off, but doesn't send a sufficient number. Remember King Benjamin had fought with the, the sword of Laban in his own hand to preserve the peace of his people? What a difference between these two monarchs. Back in the land of Nephi, these Lamanites are coming upon them, killing them, driving out their flocks, destroying them, exercising their hatred upon them. That everlasting hatred that we saw that had been passed down from Laman and Lemuel on to this last day. But at least in 18, Noah tries a little harder, sends his armies, drives them back, and wins, returning rejoicing in their spoil. Not just in their victory, but in their spoil. And unfortunately, verse 19, because of that great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts, and they boasted in their own strength. Remember, Noah's father had boasted, if we want to call it that, in the strength of the Lord. That phrase kept coming up in those chapters about Zenith. Here, his son, it's his own strength, which he considers more than sufficient to beat the Lamanites. And they don't see war as a necessary evil. Instead, they delight in blood and the shedding of the blood of their brethren. And this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. This fruit has fallen far from the tree. And so the gardener sends a servant, Abinadi to cry repentance. That really does seem to be Abinadi's watchword from the very beginning. In verses 20 to 25, he uses the phrase, except they repent, four different times. Except you repent, God will visit you in his anger. Except you repent, you'll be delivered into your enemy's hands. Except you repent, you'll be brought into bondage. Except you repent in sackcloth and ashes and cry mightily to the Lord their God, he will not hear your prayers or deliver you out of your afflictions. It reminds me of something President Gordon B. Hinckley taught in conference one month after the tragedy of 9-11. He said that the, our safety and our security, which was on everyone's mind because of what had just happened, he said our safety and security lies in our repentance. It lies in the goodness of our lives. This is the message that Abinadi is trying to convey. 
and all of those consequences of a failure to repent would be to the, toward this end in verse 22. That they shall know that I am the Lord their God. As we'll see shortly, that was something that these people had forgotten. And so the consequences of forgetting God are circumstances that force you to remember him. Like President Benson used to say, God will have a humble people. You can either choose to be humble or you will be compelled to be humble. And there was some compulsion ahead based on the consequences of their forgetfulness. By the way, that same phrase about they will know that I am the Lord comes up in Exodus and in Ezekiel, both places where the people of Israel are stuck in enemy territory. Egypt in the book of Exodus and Babylon in the book of Ezekiel. Places in enemy territory where it is easy to forget the Lord your God and therefore need wake-up calls to remember and to know Him. Well, predictably, they didn't like that message. And so in verse 26, they were wroth with Him. Same word that was used a chapter before about Laman and Lemuel towards Nephi and and every Lamanite toward every Nephite. They were wroth with him. They wanted to take away his life, but the Lord delivered him. Now, verse 27, when King Noah had heard these words, which Abinadi had spoken, he was also wroth. And notice his two questions. These are fascinating. First one, who's Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? And secondly, and who's the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great affliction? Those are the two things that King Noah will not know, refuses to know. Who's Abinadi and who's God? An unwillingness to come to know our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ and an unwillingness to come to know his chosen servants. Those are the sources of so much sin and suffering in life. In fact, it's a fairly common problem in Scripture. If you remember the story of Cain in the book of Genesis, coupled with his account in the book of Moses, In the Moses account, which is much more robust than the Genesis version, Cain says, who is the Lord that I should know him? Same question that King Noah had. And it says that he listened not to the voice of the Lord, neither to Abel his brother. There seems to be that side of, and who's Abel? This man of holiness. Why should I care about anything he says either? Fast forward and you see the same thing in Pharaoh. When Moses comes and says, the Lord has said, let my people go. What's Pharaoh's question? Who is the Lord that I should let his people go? And based on the way he treats Moses and Aaron from that moment forward, that's his other question in mind too. And who the heck are you, Moses, that I should listen to you? Later on, fast forward to the Book of Mormon, and you'll see Alma and Amulek preaching in the city of Ammonihah. And what do the people of Ammonihah say when Alma warns them about destruction for their wickedness? They say, you should be able to predict it by now. Who is the Lord that's only going to send one witness to describe these things? And who are you to say any of this to us in the first place? Cain, Pharaoh, the wicked of Ammonihah, wicked King Noah, those are the questions on their minds. Who is God and who are his prophets? So in verse 28, Noah commands to go find Abinadi, who the Lord had just delivered out of their hands, and bring him so that they could slay him. Notice his reasoning. He has said these things that he might stir up my people to anger one with another and to raise contentions among my people. Therefore, I will slay him. This is just a matter of keeping the peace. 
All that these cries of repentance are doing is stirring us up to anger and contention. When without them, we could simply enjoy our peace and happiness uninterrupted. As was said of Peter and John in the book of Acts, these people are trying to turn the world upside down. We're simply trying to keep the peace. Verse 29, what great evidence of blinded eyes and hardened hearts. Keeping these people from seeing the wisdom of Abinadi's words or feeling the reality of their own wickedness. Well, two years pass with no more disturbed peace brought on by an awakened guilty conscience. But two years later, chapter 12, verse 1, Abinadi comes among them in disguise that they know him not. I've always wondered what that disguise might have looked like. My wife and I always joke that we picture those, those fake glasses with the big kind of rubbery nose and the bushy mustache underneath. We call them Abinadi glasses whenever we see them. I always get a laugh, though, when he begins to prophesy. He says, Thus has the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, don't. I just broke cover. I guess I can take off my Abinadi glasses and let you know who I am since I just outed myself. So I might as well continue. God told me to go and prophesy unto this my people. Notice God still calls them my people. He's holding on to that possessive pronoun. He hasn't given up on them. For they have hardened their hearts against my words. They have repented not of their evil doings. You've had two years to change. I haven't seen any. Therefore, I will visit them in my anger. Yea, in my fierce anger will I visit them in their iniquities and abominations. So verses 2 through 7 are filled with the word shall and will. He was told to prophesy and he's doing it. It shall come to pass. You shall be brought into bondage. You shall be smitten on the cheek. You will have burdens upon your backs. You will be driven about. You will suffer and be smitten and devoured and destroyed. These things shall and will happen, verse 8, except they repent. Same phrase he used four times in the previous chapter. He uses it again at the end of verse 12. All this shall come upon thee, except thou repent. There is always an escape hatch. There is always a way to avoid the consequences of our sins, and that is through repentance and the atonement of Christ. Notice verse 3, speaking of King Noah, he shall know that I am the Lord. You just asked, who is the Lord in chapter 11? Well, let me introduce myself. And if you will not hear the kind, gentle voice of the Good Shepherd, then you will hear the thunderings and lightnings of an offended God. Not for him to get out his frustrations, but to speak in a loud enough voice that someone will be able to answer their own question, who is the Lord? He's someone that demands my respect and my obedience. One other interesting detail in verse 8. All of this will happen except you repent. I'll utterly destroy them from off the face of the earth. He had some more specific mentions of destruction for Noah himself. But he says, they shall leave a record behind them, and I will preserve them for other nations which shall possess the land. Your willful forgetfulness of God and his servants will not be passed on indefinitely. You might choose not to know, but you will leave a record so that others will know the consequences of that willful ignorance. 
Again, this didn't go over well with the people. Go figure. In verse 9, they were angry with Abinadi. They took him and carried him bound before the king. And in verses 10, 11, and 12, they start tattling. They start telling King Noah, Well, he said that you're going to be like a garment in a furnace of fire. He said you're going to be like a dry stalk that's trodden under the foot of beasts. He said you're going to be like the blossoms of a thistle that's blown about by the wind. I just kind of laugh at this childishness. He said this, and he told you this, and he called you this. And then in verse 12, and he pretendeth the Lord hath spoken it. There's got to get that dig in. He pretends to be speaking for God. But in verse 13 and 14, we know better than that. O king, what great evil hast thou done? What great sins have thy people committed that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? We're guiltless. Thou, O king, hast not sinned. So this guy's lying. He's prophesied in vain. It's so interesting to watch what people will do to justify themselves. They'll claim that they've committed no iniquity themselves, and they'll turn it and say, and that person has been condemning. That person has been judgmental. We've done nothing wrong, and all the guilt is on the part of our condemner. They even say in verse 15, we're strong. We shall not come into bondage or be taken captive by our enemies. Almost this admission of, hey, and even if we're doing something wrong, we can get out of it. Forget the consequences. Even if he's right on calling us out on certain behaviors, it's this prophesied consequence that we shall, that we will be punished and pestilence and destruction and all of these things. We're strong enough to avoid all of that. We're not going to fall captive to our enemies. People of Ammonihah said the same thing. Perhaps an even better example is Samson. Samson was always strong enough to get himself out of scrapes, right? The irony is, though, that he put himself into those scrapes every time to begin with. First time you really get amazed by Samson is when he tears apart this lion with his bare hands. And yet, where was he when the lion attacked him? In the vineyards of Timnath. Now, Samson was a Nazarite, which means you never eat, drink, touch the fruit of the vine. So what on earth is a Nazarite doing in the vineyards of Timnath? You can picture Samson saying, I can put myself in harm's way. Nothing's going to come of it. I'm strong enough to get myself out of it. Second time that he shows his strength is when he tears off the gates of a city and escapes the Philistine army. Well, what city was that? It was a Philistine city. When was he caught there? After midnight, what on earth is an Israelite doing in a Philistine city after hours? I think you can guess. And yet what's Samson thinking? I can get myself out of this situation. I'm strong enough to do it. And he always was, until he wasn't. Until broken covenant and cut hair led to his complete destruction. He wasn't strong enough to get out of that one because it was never his strength to begin with. It was always supposed to be the strength of the Lord. But in 16, they deliver him to the king and say, you can do whatever you want with him. Well, Noah himself isn't totally sure what to do with him yet. So he throws him into prison for a couple of days to be able to think about it and then kind of plots the plan with his wicked priests to figure out what they're going to do. Eventually, they decide to bring him back so that they can question him. And in verse 19, they question him so they can cross him, so that they can have something to accuse him with. 
That's often the order of things when someone wants to bait you into a conversation that is anything but sincere. They want to question you so they can cross you and then accuse you. I love questions. I get them all the time. And I try to engage in conversation with questioners as often as I can. But there have been times where I've ended a conversation with this question for them. Are you asking me questions because you want answers? Or are you asking me questions because you want me to have questions? If you want answers, I can do this all day. I love this. But if you're asking questions because you want me to have the questions, or in this case, so you'll have some material to get me to trip up over or to cross me in my words or to accuse me of things, then I'm done. I don't have those questions. I've resolved them in my mind. And so this conversation isn't going anywhere. These were not honest seekers asking sincere questions. These were people trying to dig a pit for their neighbor in hopes that he would fall in. And yet to their astonishment, he withstands them in all their questions and confounds them in all their words. So they try something a little different. Now this is where this story becomes really fascinating to me. Mosiah chapter 12 verse 20, they say, okay, fine. Well, what does this mean which is written and which was taught by our fathers? And they quote Isaiah. Specifically, they quote Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. And for years I read this, again, as a bunch of priests, almost kind of in a Bible bash, if you've ever been in one of those. And it's like, oh yeah, well, what does this verse mean? And you're trying to teach something and saying, oh, no, no, but the Bible says. And, and so it becomes this war of words and tumult of opinions, as Joseph Smith described it, as you're trying to use scripture to attack or to disprove or just to bash on somebody else's beliefs. And I always thought, well, if you're trying to trap somebody or make somebody feel ignorant or look stupid, what better place to use than Isaiah? He's just hard to understand. So that must be what they're doing. Let's throw out an Isaiah verse and see if he can explain it. We're going to have a, a gotcha moment. But the more I've thought about that and specifically thought about the Isaiah passage they quote, I don't think that's what they're doing. Because if you're looking for a really hard to interpret, difficult to understand Isaiah text, there's a million to choose from that are more complicated than this one. This one's actually one of the more beautiful passages of Isaiah. And one of the more straightforward, really. It's how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. It's a beautiful passage right? Break forth into joy. Sing, ye waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord hath comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. He's made bare in the eyes of all the nations his holy arm. This is a beautiful passage. So what are they doing using that one to try to trip up Abinadi? On the one hand, Abinadi could just end with verse 25 because he says, are you priests and pretend to teach this people? I love that he takes that word and throws it back in their face, right? In verse 12, they were saying, he pretends that the Lord has said these things. And now he's saying, oh, you pretend to speak for the Lord? One of us is indeed pretending. Let's see who's truly authorized. It says, you pretend to teach this people, to understand the spirit of prophesying, and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? Are we really just kind of arguing over scripture and see who has the better interpretation? Well, here's where it's interesting. It wasn't interpretation as much as it was implementation that was the contest. It wasn't that the priests of Noah were just kind of grab bag, find a verse from Isaiah and see if we can trip him up about it. It was this specific passage that they were 
presenting to Abinadi saying, isn't this what the scriptures say? Isn't this what our fathers have taught? That the beautiful feet are the ones that are bringing good tidings. You haven't done that. You're bringing bad tidings. You're, it's all doom and gloom for you. It's woe this and, and this destruction and that bondage and this pestilence and that famine. The good ones, true prophets, publish peace. And what are you doing? You're stirring us up to anger and contention. Without you, it's nothing but peace and happiness and prosperity among us. So we're the true prophets. We're the ones that are saying, sing, break forth into joy, eat, drink, and be merry. People love us. They can lift up their heads in iniquity, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. You, you're trying to bring us down in feelings of guilt or shame. You're not the kind of prophet that Isaiah prophesied. Get your feet off our mountains because they are not beautiful at all. Now that is the real crux of the issue. Who's the true prophet and what constitutes good tidings and the publishing of peace? How do you help people feel better about themselves? Is it the priests of Noah way? They had one. Or is it Abinadi's way? He had one too. Now what follows is breathtaking. It's one of the most intricate stories that you'll see in the Book of Mormon. It, it blows me away, honestly. For people that want to say, oh, Joseph Smith just wrote this thing. I want to go, really? The plot twists, what's going on here? It's astounding. I don't think there's any way that any mere mortal could just come up with this with some literary turns of phrase. Because the question they come up with from Isaiah 52, Abinadi will respond to it, but not for another two and a half chapters. It's not till chapter 15 that he comes back to this and takes their verse and puts it right back in front of them. On the way, he goes through this long tangent and then seamlessly comes right back to these verses. But what's he do along the way? He teaches the law of Moses, the atonement of Christ. You want to go to Isaiah 52? Fine. But let's just spend some time in Isaiah 53 while we're there. And then we'll go right back to the verses that you wanted me to talk about. It's amazing. He will answer their question. But more importantly, he'll answer the questions they should have been asking all along the way. Let's see how he does it. He begins in verse 26 by saying, Woe be unto you for perverting the ways of the Lord. Now to pervert something, a perversion. We often talk about perversions of truth. To pervert something often is to take something that's, that's good or true and to twist it. It's like to counterfeit something, to, to make something that was meant to be good into something that is bad. And that's exactly what they've done. They've taken scripture and are resting it to their own destruction. Their goal is good, peace, joy, but their means to attain it are completely perverted and won't work. Now, let me back up and tell you a story that I hope will help illustrate what we're trying to get to in these chapters. It was the last area of my mission. I had one month to go and my mission president told me, you can pick wherever you want to go. I'm like, what? That's not how it works. So he's like, no, you tell me where do you want to go and you can go there. And I'm thinking this must be a test. Um, I, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Presidente. 
uh, thinking, uh, I passed the test. For the last 23 months, I haven't done what I want to do. I've done where I go where you send me, and here am I, send me for my last area. And he laughed and he said, no, 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 it's not a test. I really do want you to pick. Where do you want to serve? Uh, you've been here in the office with me the last seven months. It's been great to have you here. If you want to stay, great. Finish your mission. Uh, you want to go back to one of your old areas? You want to train again? You want to be a district leader, a zone leader? You want to go to the Virgin Islands? That perked my ears up. I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Everybody does. Uh, he said, your, ch your choice. Well, I made the horrible mistake of praying about it. I said, Heavenly Father, I, I still don't want to do it my way. I've really felt your hand in all of the areas that I've served in. I don't want to stop that now. So I guess I have to do the mission president's homework. Maybe that's what he was after all along. I need to know where you need me. And in my prayers and in my fasting, it came crystal clear. You're supposed to go to Ponce. And I thought, oh, no. Are you sure you didn't mean St. Thomas? I really wanted to go to the Virgin Islands. But no, I went to Ponce. I knew there wasn't much happening there. I knew I'd have a great companion. I knew the elder that was serving there, but there just wasn't much going on. It was the hottest part of the mission, and it was July. I knew I'd roast for my last month, but I knew I needed to be there, so I went. And within the first maybe day or two, I met the reason. His name was Arturo, and the first time I met him, I just knew, you're, it's your fault I'm not on St. Thomas. Uh, his, he was the husband of a member. She'd been a member for about a year. The missionaries had taught him set after set of elders. And he'd always said, no, no, I, the church is fine for my wife. I, don't, I just don't believe it. But when I met him, I knew he was the reason. So I said, Arturo, you're getting baptized this month. It's the whole reason I'm here. And he laughed. We had a good relationship. You know, we just hit it off well from the very beginning. And I said, yeah, yeah you're getting baptized before I leave. And he said, no, the, your church is great for my wife. It's just not great for me. I don't believe it. And I'm like, that's okay. You got a month to change your mind. I mean, I figured it's your baptism. You'd probably want to know about it. So it's the reason I'm here for this last month. Now, I never, I, I wasn't being bold or manipulative. I, I never said that to any other person on my mission. But I knew it was true in his case. That was crystal clear to me. Well, we had some amazing conversations, he and I, over the course of the next couple of weeks. And the day that was the real breakthrough, you see, he'd already had all the discussions. This is back in the day where you had to follow the six set discussions. But when I asked him, wait, you've had the discussions? He's like, oh, from like six or seven sets of elders. Uh, I thought, good. Then someone else has checked that box, and I don't have to. I don't have to be bound to that. I can teach you what you need. So what is it that you need? We can talk about any questions or concerns you have. Something is holding you back. Because it's true. What do we need to help you with? Like I said, fascinating conversations followed. But the day that changed it all came as a gift of inspiration. I was looking down at his, his floor. It was tiled. And I looked at one of the tiles and I said, you know, Arturo, look at this tile and see it as kind of a, a scale of all or nothing. Almost a graph kind of a thing. And let's, I pulled out a pen and a pencil from my pocket and I say, see this pen? Let's say that it, it represents what you believe. And this pencil, it represents how you behave. So beliefs and behaviors. Things we know we should do and do we do it or not? Or that we know we shouldn't do and do we do it or not? I said, now, the distance between the two, between our belief and our behavior, that's what we call sin. 
If I know I'm supposed to do something and I don't do it, that's sin. Now, where's God's belief? And I put the pen at the top of the tile in the grout line. I said, he knows everything. And where's God's behavior? And I put the pencil right next to it. I said, so how much sin does God have? None, because he does everything he knows. How about a little baby? How much does a baby know? And I put the pen at the bottom grout line. I said, and how much does a baby do? Nothing. So how much sin does a baby have? None. There's no gap. Now, there's a huge difference between the sinlessness of God and the sinlessness of a newborn. But the rest of us are somewhere in between those two lines as we learn and live and learn and live and learn and live. Trying to deal with that gap because the gap is really hard to deal with. Does this make sense, Arturo? And he's like, see, see. He said, okay, good. Now, I knew by this time that Arturo loved to learn. Because the one danger I knew was if we're just here to eliminate the gap, well, I know how to do that. Just bring my beliefs down in line with my behaviors and I'm set. We're going to get there in just a moment. But with Arturo, it was a sense of, no, I want to learn. That was actually what was keeping him from joining the church. He wanted to know everything. He loved reading the Book of Mormon. He just had so many questions. And his wife was always saying, oh, just, why do you keep asking questions? It's just true. Go get baptized. And instead, we could just hey, we can take all the time you want. What do you want to talk about? Let's answer your questions. Keep learning. Well, eventually I got to the point in this, in this conversation, I said, you know, if you zoom out and look at your whole tile floor, every one of these is a, a commandment. Kind of zoom in on the tile, and it's not just learn and live, learn and live. It's, have I learned this one? Have I lived it? Now let's move on to the next tile. And I just wanted to see where he was spiritually when it came to the baptism commitment. And so I said, you know, Arturo, after the last couple of weeks with you, studying the Book of Mormon together, having conversations, I took out my pen and I say, you see that tile by your feet? That's the baptismal tile. And this is where I think your beliefs are. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I put the pen at the top. I said, I think you know that it's true. I think you have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. I think you know you need and want to be baptized. And then I tossed him the pencil. I said, where's your action? Where's your behavior? And he stood up and was like standing over this tile looking at me going, oh, Elder Halverson. Uh, he crouched over and put the pencil down like an inch below the pen. And I, inside I'm thinking, oh, he's close to baptism. And then I said, uh, we already zoomed in, Arturo. You've either done it or you haven't. And I moved the pencil back to the bottom grout line. Well, we kept talking about that and what was keeping him. And the last Sunday I was in Puerto Rico, Arturo Baez was in the baptismal font with me, just as the Spirit told me would happen. And it was his choice. It was his conversion. It was his experience of recognizing, I do know, and I want to eliminate that gap. I want to live up to my knowledge. Well, what fascinates me about the passage of Scripture that Noah's priests are arguing over is that both they and Abinadi had the same goal. It was to eliminate the gap. Because that gap filled with sin is also filled with guilt and cognitive dissonance and struggle. We hate that. It's not peaceful. It's not joyous. It's not good tidings. And so what do we do? We do anything in our power to eliminate it. And there's really only two approaches. We either repent we bring our behaviors up into line with our beliefs. The other way, if it's not repent, then it's forget. 
we take our beliefs and bring them down to our behaviors. By the way, if you've ever found it difficult to have spiritual conversations with former members of the church, family members, friends that just don't want to talk about it, it's often because of this. They've been living in a world with this cognitive dissonance, if it's a doctrinal or historical question, or with this sin and guilt, if it's a moral issue. And more than anything, they want to eliminate that feeling. They want to be comfortable in their own skin. And so if this doesn't seem like an option, again, if it's I can't repent or I won't repent, or I can't reframe this information, I can't make sense of these questions from church history or doctrine so that they come into line with my beliefs, then what am I going to do? I have to do this. And I almost picture this jack-in-the-box where they're stuffing it down and then closing the lid and putting the latch over and just hoping that it stays. Because as long as there's no gap, then there's no cognitive dissonance. And when you come in with your talk of the gospel, with your reminders of spiritual experiences I've had, it's you taking the little crank on that jack-in-the-box and slowly starting to turn it. Dun, 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 and there's, dun, 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 stop, stop, stop. Do not do that. Because if it pops open, I'm back in a world of hurt. I recognize and remember once again that I, that I do believe this or that this is true and that I'm falling short or that I can't make sense of it. Do not do that. Stuff it down. Close the lid. Hook the latch. Well, I just want to, I, I love you and I'm here. Na, 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 stop. I can't live with that. If you want an amazing article to read, read Brucey e. Hafen's talk or article from the Ensign years ago, A Willingness to Learn from Pain. It's not physical pain that he's talking about. It's, it's this. It's the pain of unmet expectations. It's the pain of cognitive dissonance, of sin or of guilt. And can we live with that pain? Can we live with it to the point of overcoming it the right way instead of what seems to be the quick and easy way, which Elder Hafen describes isn't so quick and easy after all. He says it takes an amazing amount of mental energy to maintain a virtual reality that is not reality itself. To keep telling yourself, nope, reality is down here. I don't want any of this ambiguity. So bring it down here. I'm not falling short of anything. Is it starting to make sense what the priests of Noah have been doing all along? Their goal is to publish peace, to bring good tidings, so that their people can break forth in joy and sing together. And they're doing it by doing this. There is no law. Therefore, there is no sin. Therefore, there is no guilt. You don't have to feel bad about anything. Whoredoms, concubines, harlots, pride, worldliness, materialism, it doesn't matter. It really is an eat, drink, and be merry kind of mentality. And no one ever has to pay the piper. Because every tune is free of charge. Meanwhile, the whole time, Abinadi, I have the same goal that you do. 
I am here to publish peace. I want them to break forth in song and joy. But I want it in the way that will last. This is virtual reality. This is stuffing down the jack-in-the-box. This is repentance. Yes, this whole gap is filled with guilt, but guess what else it's filled with? It's filled with grace. And that grace is what Jesus offers you so that you can begin to change and live into his life and love and expectations for you. That's a Benedite's message that we'll see unfold beautifully in the next few chapters. Preview of coming attractions, it's the same thing with Alma and Korahor. They both had the same goal. Korahor was to do this. Alma was to do this. Rewind to the war in heaven. And what was Satan's plan? This. No agency, as in no consequences for your choices. Every answer is going to be equally correct. And so there's nothing to fall short of. And no one will be left out. Everyone comes home. Whereas the Lord, the Father's plan, there is a distance there. There is a gap that you are about to fall into. But I will fill that gap with grace so that you can repent and become like me and come home. That way you're not just with me, but you're like me. Not just sinless in the baby way, but sinless in the divine way, thanks to the grace of Christ. These are the two options that we're grappling with in these chapters in Mosiah. So how do we get there? It all starts in verse 27. 26, Abinadi accused them of perverting the ways of the Lord. You had the right goal, eliminate the gap, but you've perverted the process to attain it. 27, you have not applied your hearts to understanding, therefore you have not been wise. Therefore, what teach ye this people? It's like you've been pretending to be priests. Do you have any pretend lesson plans? Uh, you've been pretending to teach this people. What do those teachings consist of? And their response in 28, well, we teach the law of Moses. Now, this is an interesting response because on the one hand, if there was ever something that you would think is one of these, nope, this law, this line isn't budging, it's the law of Moses, right? And you'd think, wow, this, you know, you got to obey. These are our beliefs and our behaviors have, have woefully fallen short of it. So we've got a lot of repenting to do. In some ways, it's like, really? You teach the law of Moses? Hmm. But notice how they teach it. It's fascinating. 29. Again, he said unto them, If ye teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Why do you set your hearts upon riches? Why do you commit whoredoms and spend your strength with harlots? Why do you cause this people to commit sin? Verse 30, you know I'm telling the truth. And because of that, you ought to tremble. Verse 31, you said you teach the law of Moses. Do you even know what it's about? What know ye concerning the law of Moses? And then the clincher question. Doth salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? I mean, you've been asking me questions to cross me and accuse me. Let me ask you a question to really see if you understand this concept. They answered and said in verse 32, yeah, salvation does come by the law of Moses. Now, I'm really confused. Here's a bunch of priests that are teaching a law that we associate with real strict obedience and what, how, do, I don't, how does this work? I don't, I don't get this. Abinadi is a genius. 
And what he figures out here, again, on the way to go back to Isaiah 52. So you want to start with the law of Moses? Okay, let's go there. I just want you to understand what it's really all about and what it's really for. You teach it, although you don't live it. You say salvation comes from it. Well, you're right and wrong. Verse 33, he gets into it. I know if you keep the commandments of God, you shall be saved. So, yeah, if you're talking about obedience to law, keeping commandments, then, yeah, salvation is there. Of course, no one's ever been able to live it perfectly other than Christ, but we'll, we'll keep that there for now. Yay, but while we're on the, con- the topic of commandments, let's list a few, shall we? And he begins to enumerate the Ten Commandments. Verse 35, no other gods. 36, no graven images. In 37, he interrupts the list by asking them again, Have you done all this? Knowing the answer is no. I say unto you, Nay, ye have not. Have you taught this people to do these things? No, you have not. Now keep going. This is one of those places where the chapter heading just interrupts the conversation in a place that it shouldn't. So just keep reading. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now when the king had heard these words, he said unto his priests, Away with this fellow. Slay him. What have we to do with him for he's mad? Interesting character assassination. Classic example of an ad hominem attack. I can't fault him for his argument, so let's just say he's crazy, okay? Get him out of here. But he withstands them in verse 2 and says in 3, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me. In fact, from about verse 3 to verse 10 or so, Abinadi seems to take on oh, the spirit of Nephi when he's discussing things with Laman and Lemuel uh, out as they're building the ship back in 1 Nephi 17, that don't touch me, God will smite you. There seems to be a certain sense of Abinadi as Moses. In fact, that's a fascinating parallel since he is teaching the law of Moses and reminding them of Sinai. In, in, in a way, the beginning of chapter 13, Abinadi becomes the Moses in this story. Uh, you even see it when the priests and people of Noah won't lay their hands on him for the spirit of the Lord is upon him and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses did while in the Mount Sinai, while speaking with the Lord. That, that's, there's the most obvious connection that is trying to be made here. You teach the law of Moses? Well, let me introduce myself as a Moses of my own. Do you understand the purpose behind all of these commandments? I don't think so. Because here's the difference. There are two main elements of the law of Moses. There is a moral law, which is what Abinadi is reminding them of. Laws, commandments, how we behave and, but in addition to the moral law, there is also a ceremonial law. These are the sacrifices and the offerings, the performances and ordinances, so to speak. And that's what the priests of Noah seem to be teaching. Now, there's grave danger when we separate these two and think that one is just as good as the other. That I can ignore the moral law as long as I am keeping the ceremonial law. Or in other words, if I'm performing the outward ordinances, then I am safe to ignore the inner change of heart that those ordinances are supposed to remind me of. See, this way I can say I'm keeping the law of Moses even when I'm not. And if we can associate our obedience to the ceremonial law with the blessings that come through obedience to the moral law, 
then even better with this gap, I can say I'm not moving it. I can say, nope, the law is still there. And see what we're doing? We're offering sacrifice. There went another sheep. Can you hear it? Uh, we're, we're doing all that stuff so we can say we are keeping the law of Moses, even though our behaviors are so far beneath it. Because, hey, checking off all those boxes, doesn't that fill the gap? Isn't that enough? The book of Hebrews wrestles with this. That it's not the blood of rams or goats that saves us. It's only the blood of Christ. Again, it's filled with grace. Giving us a chance to repent of our sins and come unto him. They're saying, eh, it's all good. We can say we keep the law when we don't. We can honor the ceremonial and not the moral. We can draw near them with our lips while our hearts are far from them. We can do anything we want. And these token offerings fill in the space. And there's nothing to feel bad about at all. No wonder Abinadi feels compelled to review the moral law. And having begun it at the end of chapter 12, he continues it through the middle of chapter 13. Not to take the name of God in vain to remember the Sabbath day, to honor your father and mother. Don't kill, don't commit adultery. You remember that one with your concubines and harlots? Thou shalt not steal. How about one-fifth of everyone's belongings for your tax? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. I mean, I know it's taxing work as you're laying across your breastwork of gold. Not coveting. Everything you do smacks of covetousness. So again, I ask you, verse 25, have you taught this people that they should observe to do all these things, to keep these commandments? No, he says. If you had, the Lord wouldn't have caused me to come forth and prophesy evil concerning you. I, I would be able to come with glad tidings of great joy. I'd be able to publish peace in that kind of a way. Instead, I have to preach the hard sayings in hopes that by responding to them, you will live into the peace that is promised the faithful. Verse 27, he even tells them about the law of Moses. Yes, you should keep the law as yet, but the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. So even that is temporary. Why? Because in verse 28, salvation doesn't come by the law alone. That, that's not it. So even if you thought you could live up to it perfectly, that's not what saves you. We saw this back with King Benjamin, described beautifully. Again, these are foils, right? Abinadi is almost, maybe that's the disguise he wore. It was a King Benjamin disguise. Because his message is so close to what King Benjamin just taught his people back in Zarahemla. Verse 28, were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people... They must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. Doesn't it sound like King Benjamin's words? Even if you should serve him with all the strength that you have, yet would you be an unprofitable servant? And all that he commands of you is to obey his commandments. But what's the point if he's just going to pay you so you remain in debt to prove that ledger two doesn't affect ledger one? That ledger two, those, those commandments are meant to reconcile our will to God. So verse 29, 
It was expedient that there should be a law given to the children of Israel, a strict law, because they were a stiff-necked people, quick to do iniquity, slow to remember the Lord their God. So he had to give them things that would remind them of it often. I think about that with praying before meals and when we go to bed and wake up in the morning. Why? Because food and sleep are things we don't tend to forget. And so if we are slow to remember the Lord our God, he can attach acts of remembrance to acts that we hardly ever forget. You remember to eat? Then remember to pray. You remember to go to bed? Then remember to pray. Remember me in things that you'll never forget. So in verse 30, here's the law. It's a law of performances and ordinances. It's something you observe strictly from day to day. Why the strictness? Why all the performances? Why all those boxes to check in the law of Moses? To help you remember. To remember God and your duty towards Him. Not towards the law, towards Him. I'm going to maintain this level knowing you'll always fall short of it. And what's going to fill that gap? Not just your own gritted teeth. It's His grace. So He can pull you up into justification and sanctification. The law is meant for you to always remember Him. After all, verse 31, all these things were types of things to come. So the, the, the moral law and your falling short of it was meant to remind you of your need for Him. And even the ceremonial law, which is so easy to live up to, you've proven that. Even the ceremonial law is full of types and shadows of that other side of things that's even more important. Since no number of dead sheep or oxen saves you from sin, were it not for the atonement, back to 28 again, you're not going to make it, notwithstanding the law of Moses. You see, verse 32, if you miss that, then you miss the point of the law. If you don't understand the law, which was their problem because of the hardness of their hearts, then you don't understand that no man can be saved except it were through the redemption of God. Somehow those are parallel. Understanding the law means you understand your need for the atonement. The first forces you to grapple with your needs for the second. Verse 33, isn't that what Moses was prophesying about? Isn't that what all the prophets who have ever prophesied have been talking about? You see, every prophet of the law was in reality a prophet of Jesus Christ. That's what those verses seem to be suggesting. They taught this, knowing this, and their need for this. I taught the law and the deadness of the law. Remember Nephi in 2 Nephi 25? So that they would know that their life was in Christ. He's the only one and the only way that can make this happen. That's where his grace comes in. So to try to reiterate here, the ceremonial law, which is mercy, is meant to remind us that only through Christ can we escape the demands of the broken moral law. That's where justice comes in. The moral law points us to our need for the Savior, and the ceremonial law reminds us of the ways in which Jesus will meet those needs. Every type and shadow pointing to that last great sacrifice. Either way then, the ceremonial or the moral law points us to Jesus Christ. The mistake comes when we think that keeping the ceremonial law is sufficient without Jesus, 
or that keeping the moral law is possible without him. I really hope that that makes sense. Again, either way, ceremonial or moral, they both point to Jesus Christ. Whether it's the commandments or the performances, whether it's the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots of loving God and loving our neighbor, or whether it's the offer this offering and make this kind of sacrifice, both the moral and the ceremonial law point us to him. Don't ever think that the ceremonial law is sufficient without Jesus. And don't ever think that the moral law is possible without Jesus. Either way, we need him. He's the only way. That's what every prophet has taught. And moving from Moses in 33, he then says in 34, expanding this cloud of witnesses, Have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Yea, have they not said also that he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted? Now he's going to start quoting Isaiah in chapter 14. But so he connects Moses in 33 to Isaiah in chapter 14 with those two connected verses in 34 and 35, that hasn't every prophet basically taught this? That God himself, now that's the top, lay, uh, the top line, right? That top grout line. God himself, what's he going to do? He's going to come down, not to bring his standards down, but to bring his grace down. His standard will hold. This is God himself, after all. But he's willing to come down among the children of men, take upon him the form of man, and go forth in his mighty power to do what? To bring to pass the resurrection, to bring to pass the redemption, even though he was oppressed and afflicted. This is the condescension of Christ. Con, with, descend, come down. The condescension of Christ so that he could effect what we could call the con-ascension of Christ, gone with us and up. He comes down to be with us so he can bring us up to be with him. Fully open to this gap. It's the gap that forces us to grapple with our need for him. Doing this, I don't need anybody. I've eliminated guilt by eliminating sin, by eliminating law. There's no standard. I can do whatever I want and it's fine. Who needs Jesus? As opposed to, you do need me. But I'm here for you. I will come down. God will come down and go forth in mighty power. And then, to illustrate it as dramatically as possible, Abinadi takes their question, Isaiah 52, and fast forwards just a titch to Isaiah 53. It says, hopefully you've read ahead a little bit because there's no more Christ-centered, grace-filled, condescension-focused chapter in Isaiah than chapter 53. This is one of the famous suffering servant passages. If this were an Isaiah class, we could go verse by verse and see all the poetic parallelisms and the alternate interpretations of the identity of this suffering servant. But in the context of what Abinadi is trying to accomplish, it's not just the suffering servant, it's the condescending Christ. If we use the end of chapter 13 as the introduction 
to Abinadi's use of Isaiah 53, it's to say that God himself will come down to do this. That he'll allow the, ga- the gap to fully be present in our lives and then fill it with condescending grace so he can bring us back up to him.